The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Though we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings, we're taking a three-week break to talk about the DNA of Emmanuel Baptist Church and three sermons casting in broad strokes a biblical theological vision for our church. And so far, if you could show on the screen the delight display to Claire, if you have that, that's what we've done so far. We've talked about delighting in Jesus over everything, that is worship, Last Sunday, we talked about how delighting in Jesus over everything fuels the ability to display Jesus with one another. We do that congregationally. And today, we'll look at how delighting in Jesus over everything fuels and empowers the ability to declare Jesus to everyone. And Luke 15 is the passage we'll be looking at that from. This week, I did something I don't know that I've ever done as a pastor. I wrote a sermon from John 3 through 4, finished it Wednesday, and then thought, I don't think this is the one we need right now. And then I wrote another one. (laughs) That's where we are today, which is Luke 15. I am hoping and praying that from this passage this morning, God will show us as a church how God feels about the lost, how God's heart is postured towards those who are lost so that it may inform and drive us in the way we as Christians and we together as a church are postured towards those who are lost. So this is the heart behind declaring Jesus to everyone. Luke 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, It's been very impactful in my own relationship with Christ, and I hope today it'll be very uh, powerful to you. So Luke 15, let's begin in verse one. And in verse one, you're gonna see the story behind the stories. The history behind the three stories Jesus is about to share. Look in Luke 15, verse one. Now the tax collectors, which would be well-known socially hated sinners and other sinners, were all drawing near to him, the him is Jesus. So people that were thought of as horrible people are spending close time with Jesus, verse two. And the Pharisees and scribes, people thought of as very respectable, moral, good people, grumbled saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. To eat with someone would have been thought socially and in some ways still today as acceptance of someone. And their argument is, wait, if Jesus is who he claims to be, which he claims to be God, if he's really God, surely God would not spend time with sinners. I mean, because they're bad people and God's a good person. So why would God do that? And to answer that objection, Jesus will share three stories. We're going to focus on the third one, but we need to know the first two at least a little bit. So here's his first story, verse three. Look in Luke 15, verse three. The first story is about a lost sheep. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need, or at least think they need, no repentance. Now notice a couple things, even if this is your first time ever seeing this passage, that will pop out to you. The word lost the word found, 
and the word rejoice. Those are the repeated words. Something is lost, someone seeks finding it, making an effort to find it, and upon finding it, they rejoice. And also don't miss, repentance was the hinge that moves them from lost to found. And the rejoicing is over the one who sought it. So the first story, pretty straightforward. The obvious point that Jesus would be making to his objectors, the Pharisees and scribes, is, well, don't we rejoice when something lost is found? That point's clear enough, but it's not sufficient, so Jesus keeps telling stories. Here's the second one. Look now in verse eight. This is now a story of a lost coin. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, which at that time costs money, you're you're expending resources, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This story is so much like the first one. Again, we have the repeated words lost and found and rejoice and the hinge is repentance. Repentance means to turn life direction. And in this case, it means to reclaim what was lost, what was in the wrong place. Again, both stories, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The Pharisees were saying, why would God spend time with sinners? Jesus' answer is because God rejoices in seeking and saving sinners as they repent. That is of great joy to God. Let's pause to say, praise God, that God pursues what is lost, (laughs) because that is us. So praise God that he pursues what is lost and has joy in it. But why tell a third story? The first two stories surely make the point that God rejoices in what is lost when he seeks it and finds it. But see, the third story adds more than the first two stories, and it directs Jesus's point at those who are objecting to him. So today we're gonna focus on the third story and it's broken into two acts. So if you like a good movie, (laughs) there's a first part and then a second part. Part one, the lost younger brother and now verse 11, here we'll slow down more than we have before and hear this story. Verse 11, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now this part may not make much sense to us historically, let me try to explain it. To ask for the father's inheritance while the father is still living is to ask essentially for the father to die, to give up all that is his, to cease having a relationship with you so that you can just take his stuff. So the younger son is saying, to his father, in essence, I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want you to be a part of my life. I want all of your stuff and I want it now. We're done. And in order for the father to do that, the father has to allow the son to wish him dead. Now, don't forget, Jesus is telling this story with a crowd present. Please try to picture that throughout the story. Picture the dust, picture the Pharisees and the scribes, picture the tax collectors and the sinners, picture a crowd around him as he's telling the story and try to visualize their reaction. In verse 12, when the son says, I want your stuff, the crowd would have thought, no one talks to their father. That way, no one would demand that. But what the father does is even more remarkable. Look how verse 12 continues. 
And he, the father, divided his property between them. Now in Jewish culture, the oldest son, the firstborn, always got a double portion of everything. And in this home, there's only two sons. So that means the oldest son would get two thirds of the property and the youngest son would get one third. And this means the father is tearing apart his life right now. Because the youngest son wants his stuff now, the father relinquishes everything he has. So now the older son gets two thirds, the younger son gets one third, the father has torn his life apart. And how does the younger son treat the livelihood of his father? Look in verse 13. Not many days later, so he was in a hurry, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into far country. Gathered all he had is a way of saying he liquidated all of the father's assets. He monetized them. So he figured out as quickly as he could how to get that one third of property of the estate and turn it into cash. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The, I think the NIV has wild living, which captures it a little bit more picturesquely. The, the point is he lived a kind of overtly sinful life and over time spent all of the money that he had taken from his father. He did that for apparently a fairly long time because this would have been a large estate if a father had property like this. But at the end of it, he found that that kind of life of self-indulgence, as it always is found out eventually, is not fulfilling. And so now verse 14. And when he, the younger son, had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Hopefully, uh, well, I, I assume you also think feeding pigs would be a kind of gross thing <laughs> to, to, to be doing. But in this culture, it's even grosser than you think because remember, pigs are an unclean animal The Jews are not supposed to interact with at all. So that's why the next verse is so ironic. So look now in verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods. These were like small wooden uh, cups that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Not, not only are Jews not supposed to eat pigs, now he's eating what the pigs eat. He has hit true rock bottom in the cultural sense. He's given up everything. Can't you, maybe I just have an overactive imagination, but can't you smell the pigsty? <laughs> and like feel what it would look like to be in that situation? Here, here's the guy, he took his father's life essentially, burned all of his livelihood, and now, is eating what would be too gross to eat. And whoever may have been with him when he was spending all that money is gone now. Because look at the end of verse 16. No one gave him anything. No one's there, no one's around. And now verse 17. But when he came to himself, that's a Aramaic idiom. It's a little bit like our American idiom, when you came to your senses. But it's a way of saying in Jewish the word repent. This is very important. In both of the first two stories, the person was found through repentance. And so now here in the third story, the lost son is repenting. Don't miss that part because that's what the idiom means. He's repenting. And to show you that he's repenting, look how he continues in verse 18. This is what repentance looks like. I will go to my father, the person I sinned against, 
And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned not just against you, I have sinned against heaven, a common Jewish way of saying against God because they often didn't use God's name. So I've sinned against God and before you. Verse 19, because of my sin, I accept the consequences of it. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then verse 20, he does the other thing you do when you repent. He goes to the person he sinned against. And he arose and came to his father. So now the question is, based on the first two stories, of something lost and being found, now the third story, which is more detailed, how will the father respond to someone who truly repents? How does the father respond to someone who truly repents? So now we're gonna see. When the son says, treat me as one of your hired servants, That's not the same as a slave who would live on the estate. A hired servant would live in town and he would commute into the estate and he would make a wage. The son is hoping that he can pay off his debt through restitution. So here's his plan. I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna pay off what I could never fully pay off, but I'll try to show that I know I was wrong. But how does the father respond? Now, before I can tell you how the father responds, I need you to first understand how shocking it is. And you probably won't if you're an American. Because Americans in Western culture are highly individualistic. And we're from a guilt-innocence paradigm. But Easterners are very communal. And they're from a shame-honor paradigm. I got to know college students from all over the world when I was near the University of Michigan. And when we had Christmas Eve and we had students from the Middle East and students from China, and we would talk about the pursuit of their college dreams, I noticed that they didn't talk like Americans talk. Americans go to college so that we can pursue our dreams and make a name for ourselves and have our career and pursue that thing that gives us self-fulfillment. But the people from the other side of the world go to college to make their family proud. So that when they come home, the the social circle that they're from will have pride in them and it'll bring honor to them. They think communally. We don't, and so we don't totally get what this story means. So now think of Luke 15 in a communal shame-honor culture. A paradigm where the father has been grievously dishonored by the whole community. In this sort of a situation, when a son who's dishonored you comes home, what you do is you don't even meet him. You let the people in the village rail on him for three or four days and tell him what an idiot he is and how he's ruined his father's honor. And then, maybe then, after decades of restitution, he would be allowed back on your property. But you had to show that he has dishonored us all. But instead, look what the father does in verse 20. And he arose, this younger son, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now I told you to please picture Jesus sharing this story with a circle of other people around him, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the scribes, the sinners. At this moment, all of them would have gasped because Middle Eastern patriarchs don't run. Children run. Women may run. Teenagers run. But owners of estates, they don't run. 
You could read lots of documentation on the first century culture that talks about how men should not even ever lift their robe. It was beneath them. It was undignified for part of their leg to be seen or for them to be seen doing anything that seemed beneath them. And for a father to run in public to go meet a son who had dishonored him was unheard of. No one in the crowd that day would have thought Jesus' story even seemed possible. And yet, this father shames himself by running all the way to find this son because the father had already been seeking him. Look again in verse 20. While he was a long way off, his father saw him, meaning his father would have already been looking for his son. And not only is he looking for him and seeking him like the first two stories, but then he at cost to his own honor, comes to him and then notice the end of the verse says, he embraced him and kissed him. Now I love how verse 21 reacts because remember the son's plan on the way home is to go to his father and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned before you. But now that his father has embraced him, will he still say that? Will he still repent? He already has his father's embrace. But notice verse 21. The son does continue the planned repentance. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But now notice verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. The best robe, by the way, would be the father's robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. And a ring is not just jewelry in this context. It's a ring of authority, a stamp you would use on letters and documents to show ownership. So he is now giving the son authority. And then he says, put shoes on him. Again, seems like not a big deal. But in the first century, slaves would never own shoes. They would be barefoot. And so for him to have sandals shows that he is a full son, totally restored. He has the father's robe. He has the father's ring. He now has sandals as only a son would wear. And now the verse gets even odder for us culturally. Verse 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Yesterday I was doing what I often do on on Saturday. I get alone in my bedroom upstairs and pray over the sermon, work over it a little bit. And my, my daughter, who's very young, just really wanted to sit in there with me. And I said, well, if you can stay quiet, you can sit in here with me. And she sat across from me and she had her Bible open and she read Luke 15. And I said, all right, you read it and afterwards tell me what it meant to you and then we'll, we'll talk about it. And so she finished reading it and I said, well, sweetie, what, what, did Luke, what was Luke 15 about? And she said, well, there was a guy who never even got a young goat, but the other guy got a fat cow. What does that mean? <laughs> and we're, we're all sitting here thinking the same thing. What, okay, I know this is important, but I don't know why. Why is he killing a fat and calf and why does it seem like a big deal? Here's why. In the Middle East, in the first century, you didn't eat meat. I know, that's really disappointing for us to hear. It sounds crazy, but meat was a delicacy. You might have it once or twice in your life. All the other days you have grain. So most homes that were wealthy owned one fattened calf and they would use it for a wedding. So just one time you're gonna use it this way. The rest of its life, it's for milk. It has no other value. So here is the best thing the father owns and he now slays it to celebrate the repentance and reception of his son. So here's what the meaning is. Verse 24, does it not sound like the first two stories? For this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost, just like the first two stories, and is found. And they began to celebrate, just like the first two stories. And the celebration is directed at the father because it's the father who sought and found the son and restored him. Now this is where everybody in the crowd would have expected the credits to roll. The story's over. Jesus ends. We all go home happy about seeking and finding what is lost. But this is not where the story ends. Because this third story is not like the first two stories. It subverts the expectations of the first two stories and it's a rhetorical punch. Jesus is the best person I've ever read at sneaking in a rhetorical right hook. The first two stories, you kind of get them. The third story, just when you think you get it, boom! The credits don't roll. Because unlike maybe what your Bible does and what my daughter's Bible did, I looked at my daughter's Bible yesterday and her Bible on the headings, it said, the lost sheep, the lost coin. And then the third heading said, the lost son, singular. And I said, no, no, sweetie, it's not the lost son, it's the lost sons. That's the point of the third story. So now continue and see why the third story goes longer than the first two. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he had received him back safe and sound. But notice the older brother's reaction, verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. Have you ever been in a social setting where uh, maybe it's an anniversary or a graduation party and the host has all these people over and it's really exciting, but then the host has to embarrassingly leave the party and go outside and talk to someone who's, who's angry. It's embarrassing and awkward for everyone. The host has to get up and leave because there's some seething relative out front who wants to yell at him right now. That's exactly what's going on here. This would be very embarrassing to the father. The son won't even go into the party. The whole village is there. And the father has to embarrassingly shame himself, leave all of his guests and go out because his older son is so mad he won't even come in. And now, uh, if we're watching afternoon football, you know how they'll do a replay and then suddenly like the yellow marker comes out and <laughs> they slow it way down. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna slow it way down because verse 29 and 30 are a lot of important little details. Verse 29. But the older brother answered his father, look. Now look, um, I don't know what kind of home you grew up in, but in my home, I was not allowed to use a pronoun in place of the word mom. If I came to my dad and said, well, do you know what she told me to do? He would say, hey, hey, that's not she, that's your mother. <laughs> you have to call her mom. You don't get to say her or she, you call her mom. And that, like he made me respect her position as my mom. I couldn't use a pronoun. In verse 29, we don't maybe catch it, but to say look is something no first century person would do unless they were trying to disrespect their father. They would always have the address dad or father, but there's no address here. It's as if he's saying, look you. So he's trying to indicate his disdain for his dad. And now in the words that follow, we're going to get a window into this lost older brother's heart. Look, you, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. That's quite a claim, by the way. Yet you never gave me even a young goat 
that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I know I'm slowing down the tape a lot, but these are very important details. He says, you never even gave me a young goat. You gave him the fattened calf. I never even got something minor. He gets something great. And notice why he wants it. He wants to celebrate with his friends, meaning he wants to be honored in the sight of his peers. And I love that phrase, this son of yours. Apparently, they're not even brothers anymore. This son of yours over there, who I won't even call my brother. And then notice he says, who has devoured his property with prostitutes. Earlier when we read about the younger brother living a wild life, the text didn't tell us exactly what he did that was wild. Maybe he did sleep with prostitutes. We don't know. But at any point, he's already repented now. So why would this be the moment to shame and add more lewd detail to his life? He's been restored. But see, the brother is not happy with his return. And then the brother's claim needs more attention. Verse 29, I have served you. I never disobeyed you. You see, the brother is saying, I've been dutiful. I've put my time in and these possessions are mine. Now the father's compassion, even on this older brother, is astounding culturally because this would be the part where the father has every right to kick him out. But in verse 31, he says this. The father says to the son, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Even now the father wants this older brother to know what it is to repent and to receive grace. But what the older brother doesn't grasp is what the father grasps. Now if you read the Bible and you see the same exact words within 10 or 20 verses, get out your highlighter because they're repeated for a very important reason. Did you notice verse 24? My son was dead and alive, lost and found. And we celebrate. Now notice verse 32. It's almost exactly the same. Here's older brother. While it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Don't you love that the father calls him your brother when the brother just called him this son of yours? (laughs) You see, the point that the father wants the older brother to realize is that one should celebrate and be glad when the dead is given life. One should celebrate and be glad when grace causes someone who is lost to be found. Indeed, we should seek the lost for repentance to be found. Now, Luke 15 ends there in verse 32. That's it. And I like want a sequel or for the season to be renewed. I just want to know what the end of the story is. It feels like a cliffhanger. What would happen next? It's weird. All the other stories have similarities. The the first two stories, the lost sheep and the lost coin, God delights to seek and save what is lost, sinners through repentance. Verse six, we read about rejoicing over a sheep that was lost. Verse nine, rejoicing over the coin that was lost. But this third story, there's two things that are lost. It's not just the younger son. He's lost, he's found, they rejoice. But see, the older brother is lost, but he never rejoices. He's not seeking the younger son, and he does have no pleasure in grace. So how does the story end? When I was in college in Wisconsin, Pastor John MacArthur came to Wisconsin. And at that time, I didn't know much about John MacArthur, but I knew a little, and I really wanted to go hear him preach. 
And so me and some friends drove to where he was going to be, and we heard Pastor MacArthur preach that day, and it was a wonderful, wonderful sermon. And afterwards, I met him and talked to him for a bit, and he was such a wonderfully humble, congenial, gracious man. And the sermon he preached was Luke 15. And at the end of the sermon, he asked the same question that, that I asked as well. Well, how does the story end? Do they all reconcile? Does, does the older brother finally apologize to the father? Does he ever hug his younger brother and, and make it right? But what Pastor MacArthur pointed out, and he's correct, is actually we do know the end of the story because it's written in all of the Gospels. Do you remember why this story is being told? Do you remember verse one and two? Who's upset at Jesus? The Pharisees and the scribes. Why are they upset at Jesus? Because he would care about what is lost and seek it and save it. You see, the older brother is the Pharisees. And that's why this third story has an extra half. And so here's how the story ends. The older brother picks up a piece of wood and he kills the father and he pummels him for his shamefulness. And John MacArthur said it this way, I'll quote him now. In only a few months, the Pharisees would kill Jesus by nailing him on wood, and they would congratulate themselves. They would say they had done an act of honor that protected their people, their nation, and their religion from the shame that Jesus had brought to it. Just like the older brother would kill his father for the shame he had brought to their family. And that's how the story really ends. And now I'll quote Pastor MacArthur. The final irony is that the father who should have beaten the son to death is beaten to death by the elder son in the greatest act of evil ever. And yet God, the saving gracious father in Christ uses that murder as the means by which he purchases our salvation. His son, his true son, Jesus Christ, takes the shame so that you and I could be at the celebration that brings the Father in heaven joy. But even if we didn't have the end of the story through the rest of the gospels, we have a hint of it in this story. Would you look now in verse 31 at one very important clue. In verse 31, the father says to the older son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Do you know that that's literally true? Do you remember it from verse 12? When the younger son said, I want my stuff now, remember verse 12 said he divided his property among them, meaning that because the younger son had spent all his third of the inheritance, now the older son with his two thirds, that's all that's left and they all belong to him. Do you see the point? The older brother owns all of the property and the estate. Here's what that means. For the older brother to bring back the younger brother, it cost the older brother something. That robe is actually his robe now. That ring is actually his ring now. That calf is actually his calf now. That's why he's so upset, because he has to pay something so that someone else can be rescued. You see, what would a good older brother have done? I have an an older brother, so this story really just hits for me very well. If I went out and burned everything that was our father's and my brother saw my dad's pain and saw that every morning my dad's waking up and looking out to see if I'm ever gonna come back, what a good older brother would have said is, Dad, I'm gonna go seek my brother, your son. 
I'm gonna go pay for my brother, your son, and bring him back to repentance so that I can reconcile what has been lost. But see, this younger son doesn't have an older brother like that. But the Bible says that we do. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus has become our brother in every respect. He has paid for us so that we can be called sons and daughters of God permanently. You see, the robe that's put on the son who was lost is the robe that was stripped off of Jesus, the true son. The ring of authority put on the son who doesn't deserve it is the authority that Jesus gave up to leave heaven so that he could come live and die for us. There's only one time in the whole Bible where Jesus does not call God Father. Do you know when it is? It's when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one time he couldn't call God Father is when God couldn't view him as his true son because he had our sin on his body. You see, he shamed himself so that we could be received forever. The true older brother, who literally had everything that was the father's, spent it. But the cost for him wasn't in a wallet. It was his life. And so in this text, what we read about is there's actually two ways you can be lost. You can be lost by being very, very publicly bad and pursuing selfish indulgence like the younger brother, or you can be lost by being very, very dutiful and socially respected. But in both cases, they're lost. The difference is only one repents. Let me talk then about Raleigh and the triangle and us. All of us here who live here, I need to remind you, first of all, that there are two ways to be lost. The sermon I thought about preaching, the one I first wrote from John 3 and 4. In John 3, we read about Nicodemus. He's known by name. He's prestigious. He's a Pharisee. He's religious. He's a ruler of the Jews. He has authority. He's important. And he comes to Jesus. And you know what Jesus tells him? (laughs) You need to be born again. But you know who's the next chapter? John 4. A woman. We never even get her name. She's not known. She doesn't have status in the society. She's not from an important heritage. She's a Samaritan. She's from a hated people group. And she does not have position or power. She's at a well drawing water. But which one of those two in John 3 or 4 repents? The woman. When Nicodemus is told, you need to be born again, Nicodemus' reaction is, but I'm a good person. When the woman is told, you need the everlasting life and you have sin in your life, her reaction is, to receive Christ. And do you remember how John 4 ends? The whole village celebrates exactly here, like Luke 15. So listen this morning. There are two ways to be lost. One is by going off and being societally sinful, but the other way is to be very, very good in the eyes of others, but in your heart to refuse to repent. This morning, perhaps you're like the younger son. You've been fleeing from God, ignoring his word, and running your own direction. You need to get to a point in your heart where you say, God, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I come back to you and ask for grace. But maybe you're here and you're like the older brother. And I think there's a lot of older brothers in the triangle. You're socially respected. You're important. You're a moral person. You're a good guy. 
You're not particularly interested in seeking the salvation of sinners. In fact, you think there's a lot of people in this community that are sort of disgusting to you and beneath you. You think you deserve to be respected and you don't rejoice at God's lavish grace. But listen, if you're like the older brother and you never come to a point where you realize I need to repent, then you will be left out of the celebration. The celebration is only for the good God who seeks and saves the lost and receives them with great joy. Now this whole big story is meant to show us how God seeks what is lost and how he wants us to seek what is lost. So now let me tell you what this should mean for our church, for Emmanuel Baptist Church. We, like the Father, need to seek and save that which is lost. So number one, Emmanuel Baptist Church. We must seek the lost while they are a great way off. Remember, the father was looking for the son while he was a great way off. This means that we spend resources to go after what is lost. Remember the woman who lost the coin? She burned the lamp. Remember the man who lost the sheep? He left the 99. Let me tell you a specific thing. I've worked with different churches over their budgets. And when I see budgets that spend all of the resources on maintaining what's already there, it grieves me because God's heart is to go after what isn't there. It's to go after what's lost. It's to go after what's still outside. So first we must pursue the loss while they're a great way off, even if it's challenging. Notice this whole set of three stories was told because Jesus was sitting and eating with sinners. Should we not have moments as Christians where people are like amazed at all the other people we bring into our home and into our lives because we don't think we're too spiritual or good to spend time with anybody who is yet without Christ. We must seek the lost. Can I say it to you in a blunt way? If we think we're too holy or too busy to spend time with people who are lost, then we think we're holier and busier than Jesus, and we're not. Our life is to spend time pursuing that which is lost, as Jesus said. It also means we shouldn't be afraid of repentance. In all three stories, what was lost was found through repentance. Have you noticed that we have Christianized tolerance? and now we're afraid of repentance. But repentance is the key that unlocks the door to reconciliation with God. All three of these are about that. Number two is a church. We need to fight an elder brother spirit. I think this is the heart reason why churches no longer make disciples. See, the older brother is so mad because he thinks he needs a party so that he can be celebrated. But see, there's only one person we're celebrating, the one who paid the expense to bring back what was lost. Meaning the only person to be celebrated is Christ. But an elder brother spirit sneaks into a church when people in the church think that they individually need to be honored and recognized and celebrated. And then no longer is there an outward perspective. Instead, it's about inward praise. Also, this means we don't complain about God's grace in someone else's life or complain about a position of honor. I'll tell you a true story to help you understand it. Years ago, a church I knew of started in God's grace to share the gospel effectively and many new people started to come to know the Lord. And as those new people came to know the Lord, the church started to change rapidly. All these new people were coming into the church and they came from different backgrounds and different giftedness. 
And God saved us a group of people who were very musically talented. And when those musically talented new people got saved and joined the church, they wanted to serve on the music team. But the people who had been serving on the music team were very upset because they didn't want to rotate out because in their mind, this is my position of honor. And so for new people to be saved and even for a week, move them out of that position of honor revealed finally the elder brother spirit. I will not give this up. This is mine. I have served you and I've obeyed you all these years. But see, that spirit is why we no longer are able to make disciples because we no longer seek what is lost with joy. Third, as a church, let us celebrate like heaven whenever what was lost is found. The center of the party in heaven is the lamb who was slain and raised again. The center of the party is the person who paid for it and the center of the party is Jesus. And so we as a church should celebrate Jesus who paid the cost to bring the lost home. First Peter 3.18 tells us that the just was punished for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. So as a church, let us honor and celebrate our Lord who has given everything. And let me tell you what will happen when your heart starts to be excited about what Jesus spent you'll start to spend your life the same way. You'll start to open your kitchen table to people in the community who may not know the Lord. And you won't be afraid of what you're gonna say. It's just very simple. You pray, you talk to people, and you tell them about Jesus. And in that, you watch God work. And it starts to shape your life and shape the way you think. This year-ish for our world and for our country has been challenging. This season is hard for our country and for our churches, and it's a hard season for our church too. And there's a part of me in the middle of a hard season that wants to snap my fingers and cause it to end immediately. But this week, God has been reminding me from James 1, count it joy, brothers, when you endure trials because they produce patience and character and let it have its perfect work so that you can be complete. Listen, Emmanuel, here's the good news. God is making us what he wants us to be so that his son can be celebrated so that we can reap the fruit that he is already preparing. So let us seek what is lost with the joy that the father has. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I thank you for this wonderful third story by Jesus that packs a rhetorical punch The original listeners would have thought, surely he's not talking about me. And of course he was. And some of them got so angry that they eventually crucified him. May we hear the story and understand that in one sense, it might be talking about us. Maybe we don't seek the lost anymore. Maybe we used to, and maybe we haven't for years. Maybe it's been years since we allowed inconvenience in our own personal life so we could talk to someone with the intent of seeing them saved, moved from lost to found. But that is what Jesus said, you delight in. Should we not also do the same? Should we not have a life that is constantly inconveniencing ourselves so that we can seek after that which is lost and then celebrate Jesus who paid to bring them home? So may we as a church have an outward focus. May we constantly be thinking about how we can seek what is lost 
and then see it found through repentance and then rejoice and celebrate what you do. That may mean that we sometimes have to be flexible. The older brother was mad when it cost him something for his younger brother to come home. May we as Christians never be mad if it costs us some sacrifice for you to bring other people home. Help us to sweetly get out of the way so that you can save what is lost. But perhaps you wanna do that even this moment. Maybe someone this morning is listening or watching at home and they're like the younger son, they're like the prodigal. They've been living for self-fulfillment and they finally realized They need to come to their senses. Remind them that you will meet them before they even speak. You will hug them and give them your ring and your robe and your shoes. Remind them that you're a gracious God. But perhaps someone here is honestly like the older brother. And you know what? They don't care about grace anymore. They they think that they're a good person and they think they deserve to be honored. Remind them that the only thing we deserve is the consequences of our sin and the wages of our sin is death. But Lord, thank you that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So may they be humble enough for the first time to say, Lord, forgive even me. Accept even a sinner like me who though socially respectable in his own heart has never acknowledged his need. And then may they join the feast too. In your name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.